ladies and gentlemen. We have Stuart Wilson on the show. This guy drove all the way from Kingston for this, all two and a half hours. Um, all that for five listeners that I have, so I appreciate that. Expenses are getting covered though, right? Mm, no. <laughs> no, not enough, no. But my five listeners appreciate it, oh. including my mom, my dad. Excellent. And me and you. Yeah. So there's just one more listener. I don't know who that is. We'll find one at one point. Yeah, we'll find one. Yeah. Yeah. Someone on SoundCloud. Uh, So you've been busy, man, working on your project, your master's thesis? Yes, sir. Yep. We're about uh, a month away from uh, defending that thesis. So I've just been busy writing and finishing up analysis. Nice. You want to tell us what the project is about? You're looking at uh, sleep, right? The effects of sleep on on athletes? Yeah. So, I mean, specifically our project, uh, we've got... uh, group of athletes and we asked them to record their sleep uh, over a two-week period just you know how long when they went to sleep when they woke up so how long their sleep was how good it was uh, and we're going to look at how that varies according to how good of an athlete they are so according to their huh. competition level which we're using kind of as a proxy for their skill level mm-hmm. uh, we're going to see whether the, the timing or the length of the quality of their sleep differs by their yeah their skill level and the the point of the project is there's a lot of sleep research. People have looked at sleep in athletes before. No one's ever really done it uh, uh, looking at it according to skill level. But the real point is to start to look at uh, an idea that we're calling deliberate recovery. Mm-hmm. So uh, deliberate recovery is kind of like the flip side to deliberate practice, which is just the idea that uh, you can make practice, you can deliberately make practice, you know, uh, more purposeful, more effortful, like more focused on a, on yeah. achieving a certain goal. Mm-hmm. So we know that anytime you put in effort or you put in practice, uh, you have to recover from that. So the idea of deliberate recovery is just that, well, maybe we can make our activities of recovery purposely better deliberate. for performance. Mm-hmm. So the easiest way to look at that is sleep. Everybody's got to sleep. There's no barriers to sleep. Yeah. Or no, I mean, no like resource barriers. Yeah, you know? yeah. Sometimes you've got to play. All you have to cod. do is lay down. Yeah, exactly. Uh, you yeah. got you got to play COD some nights. But yeah. other than that, they're... Fortnite. Yeah, exactly. Fortnite is the new Sorry, thing. Sorry, yeah. Fortnite is the new thing. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, so for people who don't know, deliberate practice is the concept upon which uh, the 10,000 hour rule was built, right? And, um, you know, you can argue whether it's uh, it's actually like valid or not. And hint, it's not valid. But... Um, <laughs> And that's the that's the idea that uh, Malcolm Gladwell's Outliers was built onto. Yeah, there's so there's a little bit of like the popular notion versus the scientific notion of, mm-hmm. of some of these things, and that's a really good point to bring it back. I yeah. kind of jumped ahead a few steps there, but it's all right. It's okay. <laughs> yeah, actually, let me close the the fridge because I left it open and it's beeping. <laughs> While Lou's taking care of his house here. Uh, the, uh, so the popular notion of 10,000 hours is, is like you say, is by the Malcolm Gladwell, I think, yep. I forget which, which one his book was, but outliers. So, yeah. yeah. So it's the idea that, well, he says that, you know, you need to accumulate 10,000 hours of practice to be an expert at anything. And like most things that become popular, it's like kind of half true, but not really. And so it, it's based off research that. Uh, there's like a number of if you take those points you can break them down well the first one is 10,000 hours of practice well the original study wasn't about any practice it was about what they called deliberate practice and so it's got to be mm-hmm. deliberate practice is highly effortful practice uh, not done for no immediate reward but designed for the express purpose of improving performance usually through very relevant uh, exactly, and timely yeah. feedback mm-hmm. 
Uh, and also just this idea that 10,000 hours, that was just the average in the original study. That was the average number that experts or people we, that they assumed would become experts, the average number of hours they had accumulated by age 20. In other words, it's completely arbitrary. Yeah. But it, what the takeaway is there that experts do more really good practice that yeah. we know for sure. Yes. And so that's why in my explanation there, it's not, it's not that we're looking for specific qualities of, of recovery or specific numbers of hours or this. It's, it's just that idea that we know that experts design their practices a certain way, mm -hmm. very intently, very deliberately. And we, and yeah. we want to know, do they do the same things for the recovery? For the recovery. Yeah. And um, so do you think that, well, actually, let's start with this. How many hours of sleep should a normal person get? Not athlete, just in general. It's a great point. It's so, well, what, like, what have you heard before? Seven to nine is what I heard. Seven to nine is absolute standard. So that's yeah. the recommendation put out by the American National Sleep Foundation. And that's what everything is based off of. You go seven to nine covers about 99.9, .9, I don't know, forever mm. percent of people. Uh, there's a really good... Uh, quote by a sleep researcher, excuse me, Matthew Walker, yeah. uh, who says that the percentage of people who need fewer uh, than, I believe it's fewer than six or few hours of sleep, uh, rounded to a whole number, is zero. Zero, yeah. And they have that specific gene, right? Yeah. So there's this, there is this gene where you can get by on five to six hours of yeah. sleep. Uh, and there's a very, very tiny percentage of people in the world. And so the, you know, but everyone thinks they have that. Gene. Everybody does. And the neat thing is that gene means you get by on five to six hours of sleep. Yeah. Not three to four, like five to six hours. Right. And you everybody thinks exactly good sleep. So, so what do people need? People need seven to nine hours. All, all the health outcomes in terms of uh, mortality rates, uh, illness, injury, like all these just general you know, living a good life kind of things, everything starts to drop off below seven hours. Living your best life. Yeah. The, I saw an, another same same guy, Matthew Walker, has got another uh, good quote where people, uh, men who have, uh, men who sleep five, below five hours a night have significantly smaller testicles than men who sleep seven to nine hours a night. Smaller testicles. Smaller testicles. And men who sleep five to six hours a night do they uh, shrink? They or do they not develop to be the full size that they the full potential? My understanding is that they're not living up to their full potential. Oh. But I'm not. I won't don't quote me on that one. But then the other one is men who sleep five to six hours uh, have a life expectancy ten years less, live ten years shorter than those who sleep seven to nine hours. So right. just sleeping less, you essentially or sorry, no. Not life expectancy. That's the testosterone. Men who sleep five to six hours a night have the testosterone levels, so lower, of somebody 10, hour, 10 years older than them. Yeah. So if you're a young guy, you sleep less, you have the testosterone of an old guy. Who, exactly. Yeah. You're shrinking your balls. You're shrinking your balls. Pretty much. Can't do that, man. <laughs> Keep those balls full and get a good night's sleep. Um, so, okay, is that different for athletes then, the seven to nine hours? Do you think athletes should get more than that? There's no real strict recommendations. That's part of what we're like trying to look through. Um, a lot of the, there's a center for sleep in Calgary works with a ton of Canadian Olympic athletes and their general recommendations are, are eight to 10 hours for athletes. Um, so just saying, well, we know seven to nine is good for most people. We know that athletes do a ton more physical and mental yep. work. So, so their idea is eight to 10 hours of sleep uh, a night or about 60 hours a week 
60 hours a week. Okay. So again, I believe that breaks down into somewhere in that eight to 10, but that's, there's, there's nothing really, that's not based off anything. That's just other than the idea seven to nine for most people bump it up a little bit for Mm -hmm. athletes. Um, and the fun, and uh, part of what we want to look into, uh, is that depending on the sport, it, it varies greatly based on how far off athletes are from that mark. There's some sports, team sports, yeah. excuse me, where, where they're actually seem to be pretty decent. You know, they generally have one practice a day or like one on, like on field, on yeah. court, whatever practice a day or a game, uh, plus video and other stuff in the morning and whatnot. So they tend to seem to get about that eight to nine, at least seven and a half to and team sports tonight in team sports, whereas individual sports, swimmers, runners a lot where they're doing two, three practices a day, they seem to be lacking a lot of sleep. Most studies come back with numbers in the about six, maybe low seven. That's so interesting. Yeah. Do you think it's because, well, I, I think th- it could be because as a team environment, everybody is like, has the same uh, curfew, even in the pro leagues, they have curfew. So they have to be back in the rooms by a certain time. So it's like the whole team is going to bed. You're going to bed, right? Because the, your team's doing it. As if, but in, in individual sports, like it's just you. You know what I mean? So there's yeah. nothing. Um, but the practice thing is an interesting point, I guess, because as a team, you practice probably once a day. In individual sports, you're gonna have, you know, multiple practices throughout the day, whenever you want, pretty much, because you call up your coaches and. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's that's actually interesting. So, um, do you think that um, do do we know how? how much uh, lack of sleep affects the performance of athletes? Like, and I know this is an overgeneralization because there's multiple sports, but have we quantified how, how it affects that? Uh, absolutely. There, well, so I'll say absolutely in terms of those studies have been done, numbers have been produced, uh, but the results vary quite a bit. Okay. And it's because there's a number of factors that go into that. So being, I can't really quote good solid numbers in terms of it reduces this by this much. Yep. Uh, because like you said, it varies on a number of levels. It varies by sport. Um, it varies somewhat by the age of the athlete, but it also varies according to uh, whether the, the uh, we call it sleep chronotype. Uh, so it's whether the athlete is like more of a morning person or more of an evening person. Oh, so that's called the chronotypes, like whether you're a morning guy or a exactly. night owl? Yeah. Okay. Uh, so that's actually in the research, they call it it's like morning larks and night owls. Mm-hmm. So you have these studies with larks, intermediates, and owls, which is... That's cool. I, yeah, I guess the research which one are you? board or something. Uh, I am a solid straight down the middle intermediate. Nice. I'm neither morning nor so evening. So you, you wake up around noon. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. So, so I mean, so I'll say that the, uh, uh, yeah, there's a, because of that stuff, it, it, it affects the results that you see from these studies. Uh, but we can quantify a, a lack of sleep or sorry, a sleep deprivation of only a couple hours, yeah. say two, three hours in just one night, you slept normal up until that night, but just one night you'll see significant decreases in, in memory, uh, in alertness, in attention, in a lot of skill-based things. So dart throwing, goalkeepers, like savings, tennis serving. So a lot of accuracy, accuracy-based things you'll see affected mood. Uh, so, uh, happiness sorry happiness anger any of that kind of stuff and so that kind of translates into you see a lot of affected uh ratings of perceived exertion so how hard you find exercise to be you find it a lot harder after you've slept less Mm -hmm. at the same power output the same physiological outputs um you will see uh physiological 
changes like your your oxygen consumption is greater your heart rate is elevated uh your so your body is putting in more work just for the same exercise that you've always been doing with just regular levels of that's heart rate that's the best and, way of summing it up right and and actually that's that's one of like one of the conclusions of the literature if you want to sum it up sleep deprivation is essentially your body's got to put in more work it's costly to put out the same output that it had before it can do it mm-hmm but it's just got to work, work a little bit work harder. Work a little bit harder, yeah. Um, so, but is that the same? Is the effects of sleep deprivation the same on aerobic and non-aerobic uh, activities? Because uh, from what you sent me, and I was reading a lot of papers mm-hmm. that you sent me and said um, it has less of an effect on non-aerobic activities, which was really interesting. Yeah. So, like, I guess strength-based or, like, explosive-based sports or activities are affected less by sleep deprivation? Yeah, absolutely. So, so it's your summary, actually, is a great uh, segue into that because... I'm the segue king. That's what they call me. <laughs> That's what they call me. Not me. I don't, I don't say that. My mom yeah. calls you that every once My in a while. My mom calls me that. <laughs> yeah, go on. <laughs> um... So yeah, be, it, because if you think about it, sleep, it, you got to work harder, put in the same output. So if yeah. you do something short term, uh, a lot of strength based tests, even some power based tests, mm-hmm. a wind gate, something like 30 seconds or under, we'll say yeah. uh, anaerobic power stuff. Um, you, there are potential effects and I would never go to say that like, a you know, an Olympic sprinter would be unaffected. Of course, yeah. But when we're, if we're talking about statistical significance from the from the results of a study uh, kind of point of view, you don't really see you at least see inconclusive uh, if if no effect at all. Uh, whereas when it comes to something more prolonged, so generally aerobic exercise, especially things they call test to time to exhaustion, yep. so just put you on a bike, go for as long as you can. You see really big effects there. Because mm-hmm. so, like we said, if if I can sum up what I said before in terms of the effects, a, a lot of the effects of sleep deprivation are central, so there are effects on the brain, mm-hmm. and so a lot of that comes through in, like I said, how hard you perceive the task to be, how motivated you are, uh, how resilient you are, all those types. Of, so, time to exhaustion is a perfect example of of if you're essentially given more time to realize how tired you are and yeah. how shitty you feel, yeah. you're going to perform worse. Whereas on one jump, you really don't notice that effect. The the motivation thing is kind of interesting. So when you sleep less, you're less motivated. But is that related to like, I guess, dopamine levels or something? I, I'm not sure in terms of the neurotransmitters. Yeah. Some, something for sure. One, one uh, thing I can say for sure is a lot of it's to do with that rating of perceived exertion. Just the idea, like we said, when you go and do something you always do and it feels harder than usual, yeah, you're just not motivated to keep going. Right? Mm-hmm. It's a crappy feeling to go into something that should right, feel easy right. and it feels not easy mm-hmm. as anything else. So even the uh, the lack of sleep and how it affects decision-making, I guess, or skill learning in sport, that's also interesting. So has there been anything to look at the mechanism behind that or have they only found that okay it just affects decision making but we don't know how exactly um i yeah the i would be unclear i wouldn't be comfortable explaining the mechanism yeah. it, it, like it definitely gets in deep i can't say it, uh one of the neatest things about sleep in relation to the skilled learning especially what you mm-hmm. said there there's these really cool uh studies looking at the effect of sleep just on basic skilled learning yeah. Um, and so we see that uh, learning a skill. So when you 
you like a really basic and and I mean among your five listeners, I hope there's no you know memory experts. And five was an exaggerated number. It's more, it's more like three. <laughs> but generally, three. you learn you learn something in your short term memory, and then yeah. and then that's like during the practice, and then once you get a break, you get time to convert it into long term yeah, right. memory, right? And so in most people, we're generally set up that that happens while you sleep. Mm-hmm. The interesting part is that uh, you can do that outside. Right, it'll go over time. It gets stored in long-term memory once you get that break. Once you, once you're no longer processing things in the moment, your brain can kind of switch into the background and start processing things in the background. Put it in long-term. Well, when you're in, when you're sleeping, you have no incoming stimulus. It's like the best time to be able to do that. So the neat thing is, not only is it stored, but it's actually those memories can actually be enhanced, and so that's when the brain starts making connections with previous things you've done. It starts creating more efficient pathways, neural connections between whatever actions, between perceptions, mm. those types of things. So what you find is when you learn, it just like s- simple like uh, finger tapping tasks and little reaction time tasks, just you know, little knickknack thing, little, little knickknack tests. Uh, if you get asleep. Sorry, if you get sleep in between learning and a retention test, you'll perform better than if you hadn't slept over that same amount of time. Mm-hmm. So the study design and, and they switched a number of ways to control for morning and evening. But the easiest way to explain it is say you right. get you get you learn in the morning and 12 hours later you get tested at night. Your your uh, performance in the retention test will be better if you learn learn that at night. 12 hours later, got tested and slept in between. And so I say there's differences between, you know, morning and evening. And so they do revert, yeah. they control for that. But the basic explanation, 12 hours with sleep, better than 12 hours without sleep. Well, dude, you explained that perfectly. And then you're two minutes ago, you're like, oh, I don't know if I can explain that. <laughs> and, then, and then you just explain everything perfectly. Um, so, but when you're, when you're looking at, uh, and this is from me reading your paper, when you're looking at sleep outcomes you're looking at three things sleep duration okay we've talked about that so yeah. how many hours sleep and then you look at sleep quality so what is sleep quality exactly like does sleep differ from in, in quality from like from one night to another absolutely and so it's in some ways that's a really easy question like yeah. when, when you wake up every single morning you come downstairs i don't i mean I can't comment. Maybe somebody's living with your Lou here. Mm-hmm. Maybe somebody's living here with your Lou. Yeah, sorry, I don't know. Don't put me on the spot. I was supposed to say yeah. that or not. If someone's down here in the morning, the let's first say thing, someone was let's down. Say here. mom's here. She's yeah. gonna ask you, Lou, how's your sleep? You're mm-hmm. gonna say, Oh, it was good. Oh, it wasn't so good. Right? How did right? you sleep? Sleep quality is a really basic thing that we mm-hmm. all kind of understand. Yeah, I was a good sleep. That so you're was saying that was a one. stupid question. What I'm saying is, uh-huh. it's actually not. Mm. It's a very, it's a really complex idea. So the those recommendations of seven to nine hours uh, by the the National Sleep Foundation in the U.S. that those have been longstanding forever. We've known that for a long time. We've just reinforced it with, or they've reinforced it with more and more research. They've just recently put out, I think it was 2015 or 2016, um, recommendations for sleep quality. And they've, so they've got a number of parameters that they use to objectively assess it. So there's like how many times you wake up in the night, how okay. long those awakenings were in general. They've got something called sleep efficiency, which is just essentially the uh, amount of time that you spend asleep as a proportion of the amount of time you spend in bed. So like, does it take you a long time oh, to fall asleep? Okay. Uh, and then are you in bed uh, because you wake up in the night or, you know, later at the end of the at the end of the night, you're trying to fall asleep, but you can't, so you just get up for the day. That, mm-hmm. and then, and then, as part of that, I already mentioned that they call it sleep onset 
latency. So just how, how long does it take you to fall asleep? To fall asleep. So just all those, and those are all kind of intuitive, right? The more times you wake up, the longer it takes you to fall asleep. Uh, the longer you spend in bed trying to sleep without being able to, we all kind of get those. Mm -hmm. But interestingly, uh, so those are objective measures and there's some rough parameters, rough definitions for what good and bad is according to those. But interestingly, the best one that they always, we always come back to is just on a scale of one to 10, how good was your sleep? Right. And, and the neatest thing about that is, is you can say, well, that's, it's so subjective. That's totally up to you. Uh, the neatest thing is, is sleep quality is extremely subjective. Um, if I tell you that you had a good sleep, like if I, you know, set up a whole bunch of fake equipment, pretend to monitor you mm. and say, oh yeah, Lou, this says fake that equipment like this. Yeah. The one I have here. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Actually, this looks like a, yeah. This looks like good. <laughs> This is sleep equipment here. Yeah. So if I tell you that, yeah, you got you scored 99 out of 100 on your sleep last night. You killed it. And if I hadn't told you that, you would have rated yourself at a 6 out of 10. Mm -hmm. If I tell you that, you, and then you'll say, okay, I guess maybe I was more of a 9 out of 10. If you go into some reaction time task or some performance test, you'll perform better just because I told you that you, told you had so? a good sleep. Yeah. Wow. So it's, it gets back to this idea of, of you know, placebo effects and shame yeah. treatments. And, and the neat, the, re, the interesting part here that we're, they're just kind of starting to explore is, is because sleep is so subjective, because a lot of the effects are felt centrally, mm -hmm. um, the idea of a placebo effect, we, when we hear that, we think, oh, placebo means nothing. Well, it doesn't mean nothing. It means that there's no like peripheral physiological change, right? But because the effects of sleep are already felt centrally in the brain, um, a, a perception change telling you that you had a good sleep, well, that can have even a physiological effect. That can have an effect within the brain, right? So it, what, essentially what I'm saying is just telling you something that goes into your brain. Mm -hmm. All this, everything was already just in your brain anyways, so even though I've just told you something, we can have an actual physiological effect. Right. Um, and, and the outcome of sleep will be differed based on your interpretation of it. You mentioned Matthew Walker, and he was on uh, Joe Rogan's podcast. And he said the placebo effect is probably amongst the, the most powerful effects in pharmaceutical, uh, the pharmaceutical industry. So it's like if you believe something. Absolutely. That's just as good. Absolutely. Because it will lead to physiological effects and... We, yeah. we think we all understand that mood changes things, right? Uh -huh. And mood is, is just a change in, you know, whatever little neurotransmitter changes in the brain, right? Mm -hmm. it's, a, it's pretty close to the same as a placebo effect, right? We're talking about the same thing. Because there's nothing like tangible or, you know. There's no, there's no I, I like to say peripheral changes, right? Yeah, there's, yeah. Nothing, there's no change in, I don't know, your blood markers. In the makeup of your, yeah. yeah. But there is an actual change in your brain. So when it ta we talk about sleep quality, yeah, it's the same thing. It's the same thing as mood. It's the same thing as placebo effect. It's it's a it's a perceived important like a perceived change or a perceived interpretation, I should say, in your brain. Mm -hmm. And so that kind of stuff matters. That's so cool, man. So how do you get? Uh, let's say um, we agreed that athletes are not taking it seriously enough, right? How do you get athletes to actually buy into this and? <clears throat> Excuse me. And how do like how do you convince them that sleep is important? And that's you know, that's a it's that's a million really, dollar question. Like that's what you're trying to figure out right now, right? It's like how do I get them to buy into it? Pretty much, it's really interesting because sleep uh, 
So there's a study that asked a couple hundred, there's been two different studies, one in Australia, one in South Africa that asked athletes, a whole bunch of, you know, several hundred high level athletes, what are the forms of recovery most important to you? Uh, or when we talk about recovery, what do you think is important? And all of them, everybody across, you know, athlete gender, their sport, their everything, age, everybody said sleep is the most important. So people get it, but we still don't see the numbers that we want to see. And everybody's heard seven to nine hours. That's why I said, like I asked you, everybody knows that number. Everybody knows your eight, standard eight hours of sleep. If no I know it, right. everybody should. <laughs> yeah, pretty much, man. Pretty much. So, but, so that's, but that's the million dollar question. Why don't people do it? Uh, and that to me, that like it comes down to, you know, questions of behavior change and whatnot. And I'm not sure because a lot of the things that I could come on here and say, or, or you'll find you'll, everybody knows various things about what sleep will do to you. Mm -hmm. uh, lack of sleep will do to you. Getting sleep will do to you. Uh, but there's a piece missing in there in, in terms of translating that into actual, I don't know if it's performance outcomes that athletes will care about, but there, there's something that there's uh, a, a colleague that uh, Dale Ablins, who's the uh, IST head for Athletics Canada, their sprints and and their, and their yeah. power sports. And Former uh, strength and conditioning coach for the women's national team, right? Hockey? I think uh, Yeah, yeah. Well, he's done some work with them. So, yeah, yeah. right now he works with, with the track and field with yeah. Athletics Canada. So, and I was talking to him about this, and he, he said, well, he said close to what I say. Everybody knows, everybody's heard they need to sleep, right? You need to find something different. Right. There needs to be something, whether it's a specific outcome on a specific like measure for them. Like, so if you, for hundred meter sprinters, if I can show them or tell them that their performance is changed by this much, maybe that's what does it. But as of now, I don't have a good answer for you because we know a lot, but it's not changing. Sleep's uh -huh. getting worse in the general population and the athletic. It's population. getting worse. Yeah. Even with all the advances in, uh, in the science of sleep and yeah. So a lot of it's, uh, from what I read, at least a lot of it's societal, but they'll say it, they, it seems that in the, in the fifties or so, most people slept eight to nine hours and now we're right around seven hours to on do, average. Uh, maybe that's it. Now we got cool stuff. I don't know. Yeah. We got so much cool stuff there, but so there's a bunch of, so a few arguments there. One, I mean, that's not even getting into, you know, like values of society and a, a lot of that. Yeah. Um, I will say there is a, one major thing is is the idea and that part of what's driven our our work on deliberate recovery is is the idea of you know taking pride in not sleeping there's a yes. little while you heard people talk about that yeah like I, yeah i don't i'll sleep when i'm dead yeah yeah i still hear that all the time the ironic part being that if you don't sleep you'll, you'll be, dead be dead sooner yeah yeah, yeah. Well, sure but if that's then, what you want to do sleep. go for it yeah. yeah but uh so there's there's that societal value on work over recovery and seeing something as like sleep or even leisure time as being wasted Weakness time or something like that. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. So, and so there's that whole perspective, but I mean, even if we want to keep it pretty mechanistic, a lot of stuff, uh, there's a lot of evidence surrounding light exposure and sound exposure. Mm -hmm. So in the fifties there, yeah, there's a lot less going on, but if you think of, you know, what, I don't know if you, Obviously, I was not alive in the 50s, but from what, from what I've seen in the movies, mm -hmm. um, but if you, if you imagine sitting around at night in the 50s, what's going on? Well, there's maybe there's a TV, but it's maybe black and white. It's definitely not very good. You probably don't watch very much on it. You mm -hmm. may listen to the radio. Yeah. There isn't too much going on outside your window. No Netflix and chill. There's no Netflix and chill, and that's for sure. A lot of chill, though. Why? 
Well, hopefully. Yeah. yeah. So, but the point is that, so now we've got so many more screens, we've got more noise inside and outside of the house. We've got more light, like I said, from the screens, but also from things, cars, streetlights, all that outside. And we can measure though the effects of those things on our bodies. So for instance, uh, you might've heard of, of uh, reducing your screen exposure. Yeah, I was gonna ask you about bedtime. that. Why, why is that uh, recommended to get a good night's sleep? So uh, blue, there's, you know, go back to grade 10 or something, science mm-hmm. class there's different wavelengths of light mm-hmm. one of them being blue light uh, i didn't go to high school here in canada man so you gotta oh, you gotta explain that in detail well, it's probably ahead of ours then you might know more so just there's there's <laughs> the different wavelengths of light one of them is called blue light you know there's red light blue light whatever yeah uh blue light or the blue wavelengths of light is found to inhibit melatonin production melatonin production oh. or melatonin is a hormone that's essentially the the, the sleep trigger Right, melatonin reaches a starts to increase. Your body goes, okay, it's time to sleep now. And so there's circadian waves to melatonin, and which you know just within the day it cycles down, it cycles up again. Uh, everybody's got their own individual, and that's a lot of what determines your sleep chronotype is when your melatonin cycles. Uh, but that can be delayed or inhibited by mm-hmm. blue light because that blue light is essentially your body interprets that as well. The sun's still up. I shouldn't go to bed yet. Right. Right. So it tricks your brain into thinking it's still daytime. and Exactly. So that's why. So there's this recommendation. Try to minimize your screen time one to two hours or mm-hmm. eliminate really your screen time one to two hours before bed. So tablets, smartphones, TVs, laptops, all that kind of stuff, which is difficult. So there's there is some uh, there's a couple ways around that. Some is like you'll find on laptops. Uh, there will be different programs that are like they block the blue light emitting uh, that comes out of your laptop there's a different couple different like i use flux mm-hmm. uh on my laptop and there's i use it because it you know it seems like a good idea there's there's mixed evidence as to how well that works the other thing you can try is there's like blue lot blue blocking uh sunglasses that you can wear at night so you'll watch it you put them on it just blocks the blue light everything else comes through so you watch tv at night without getting the melatonin really? reduction yeah i mean you look like a loser but you sleep well yep but and that's, all, that's all that matters. If that's if that's what you want, that's man, what you gotta do. That's so gotta maybe do. not when you're Netflix and chilling, but mm-hmm. maybe Fortnite on your own. But if it works for your partner, then maybe you wear it when you're Netflix and chilling. Maybe maybe, maybe, they, maybe he or she will be much happier that you're both getting a good night's sleep. Hey, we're not judging. Absolutely, no, not man. at all. Good sleep's good for everybody. That's right. So well, you mentioned in the sleep quality, there's a polysomnography. Am I pronouncing it right? Mm-hmm. So what is that exactly? So the. the we talk about sleep quantity and quality and, and there's a number of ways of measuring them. A lot of what I've been talking about. So the, the basic recommendations, the basic quality stuff just comes off giving questionnaires to people. Yeah. So that's the easiest way of measuring sleep, obviously, like most things. But if you want, if you really want like good, accurate measurement of sleep. So when it comes down to like assessing uh, sleep disorders or insomnia, that kind of stuff, they have what they call polysomnography. Which is they lie you down, they hook you up to a, a machine in a very a variety of different ways, um, and it measures, uh, you know, heart rate, temperature, brain waves, all these different kinds of things yeah. uh, to get a really accurate, objective measure of your uh, of your sleep. Hmm. So, uh, and then you mentioned there's an accelerometer that you can wear. Is that the same thing, but yeah. like a cheaper alternative? Or yeah. So I should say, sorry. Yeah. So we've got one end. We've got just use your questionnaires. Uh, the really objective, the high quality end, uh, 
expensive and whatever you got polysomnography one step closer uh mm-hmm. in terms of it still costs some money but uh it's a lot more accessible is this idea of actigraphy so it it's essentially they can be wrist uh excuse me either wristwatch monitors or uh, you can wear it a strap around your chest and it's just it's an accelerometer that's it it just measures yeah. your movement during sleep and there's certain patterns amounts of movement uh that we can correlate with different phases of sleep different levels of sleep depth of sleep those kinds of things so it it does it's like a it's like your poor man's polysomnography um and then like one step closer or sorry one step more accessible i should say uh, is essentially like cheap actigraphy which is what you find in like a smartphone or like a, an Apple, I don't actually know if the Apple watches have them, yeah, but probably the, like you know, a like a smart watch. Stuff like exactly, that. Fitbit, yeah, that's yeah. what I was going to say, yeah. So, uh, and it's, I mean, it's a great idea. Uh, the issue with the, the actual like actigraphy, like purpose-built wristwatches or wrist monitors, they're pretty good. They're about, from what I stand, they're about 93% correlation with, with polysomnography the fitbit ones are not so accurate at the moment like most things we've just put them in we're just figuring them out work in progress yeah so uh i so i haven't done this research what i most recently heard from some people somebody out of the sleep center in calgary was that they don't recommend the use of monitoring your sleep using the fitbits and whatnot just because uh because it's so unreliable sometimes you wake up and be like, wow, that felt like a really good sleep. You go roll over, look at your Fitbit, and I don't know how it puts the information out, but you look at it, it says you got a poor quality sleep. It could mess with your placebo? Exactly. It's like, whatever, reverse placebo or something. But like we're saying, because their subjective interpretation is so important, if you use an objective measure that's not that good, Mm -hmm. it, it might actually be worse than just relying on, oh, that was a pretty good sleep. I should, you know, I should trust that. Right. So, okay, aside from uh, blue light, is there anything else that people should be doing to get a good night's sleep um, other than, you know, like decreasing screen time and all that? What's, yeah, for sure. What else is there to do? For sure. There's a there's a couple basic basic ones that everybody can kind of get Aside behind. from the ones that you always hear about. Well, there that's the ones you there's hear about, that. but there's, there's the good stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, so <laughs> the the most important one is is a consistent sleep time and wake time. So the body operates in like sleep is a hormonally controlled uh, thing occurrence. Uh, so like we we're talking about melatonin, we talk about the rise and fall of cortisol as well. So all these the r- normal daily rise and fall of various hormones within the body um, or concentrations within the body, all related to this kind of genetic and and somewhat environmentally affected idea of a circadian rhythm, which is you know just we all know at certain times of the night mm-hmm. you want to sleep. Yeah. Uh, the neat thing, actually, they say in, in studies where they're of like, you know, six days of sleep deprivation, you'll find even like what, however many hours that is, like two hours before it's supposed to be over, they'll find that people, if it's like the middle of the day at that point, even though you haven't slept for six days and you're exhausted, mm-hmm. in the middle of the day, if that if it's your up point in your circadian rhythm, people generally won't be that tired. They'll be affected. They'll be far worse than they were on the first day or they would be normally. Yeah. But... They won't actually be that tired because that's the time of the day that their body wants to be awake. Um, so all that to say, getting a, a consistent bedtime, consistent wake time fits into that circadian, circadian rhythm. rhythm. Yeah, so I can. Yeah, I, sorry, go on. Well, just ideally, you want to match them to what your personal individual rhythm is. Preferences. Yeah. But the idea, it was like you know, if your job, your 
your family, whatever, something means that you can't do what you, even what you really want to do, as long as it's consistent, your body can kind of shift and adapt that mm -hmm. way. So if we say eight hours is ideal, bed at 10 p.m., up at 6 a.m. every day, even if you don't want to be getting up at 6 a.m. every day, doing it every day will be better for your body. On the long term, it will. In the long will... term, yeah. Okay. Yeah, I can attest to that personally because uh, in my first year of my master's, I... I thought I was, you know, one of those people like, oh, I don't need sleep, bro. Like I can, I can survive on three hours or whatever. And so I took a job uh, working night shift at a warehouse from 11 p.m. to 7 a.m. Right. And I did that for about maybe two, two months, two and, two and a bit. And, um, and then I would have school in the morning and I was honestly, I would come home and I'm like a psychopath, like, cause I'm not getting enough sleep. Like I'm angry. <laughs> I'm pissed off. I'm, I'm depressed all the time, like yelling at people and stuff. Yeah. And then. As soon as I quit that job, a week after, I'm like, oh, everything's fine. <laughs> and like, as, as if that was like an entirely different person before. So yeah. it's crazy how much it can cha change your mood and Absolutely. how you can carry yourself. Yeah. So that's, I, so I'm not as familiar with the research in that area, but there's a ton of research into night shifts and just shift work in general. And it's, it's incredible how, and I like, again, I don't want to come across on something I don't know as much about, but essentially mm. shift work is terrible for your body. It it's, must be. It's absolutely it awful be. for your body for a number of reasons, mm. mainly just related to there's so much about uh, hormone release, like digestion, just general, the general processing of your body yeah. is based on these, uh, this idea of circadian rhythm and being awake all night consistently just screws that. So, so th yeah, the biggest one is consistent light exposure if you try and get uh try and keep it quiet when you're going to bed that's just kind of a more simple one just you know it's less distracting whatnot it's the idea of reducing stimulation uh the other big one you can do is and it's it's pretty individual but the general recommendation is try and make your bedroom cool so dark quiet and cool uh the reason being there is we've for a long time we've known about light exposure and how that controls circadian rhythm but there is some interesting information that I've just read about. It's been around for a little while, but I've just I learned more about it that uh, a lot of your circadian rhythm is also dictated by temperature. Okay. Um, so you're hot throughout the day, you're active, right? Part of why, why you want to go to bed at night is it cools down and there's some signal in terms of the environmental temperature that signals at a certain point, it starts to get cooler and now I want to go to bed. Mm-hmm. So as you become less active into the night, your body cools down. It gets to a point where it, just like the light exposure, it's a signal that it's time to go to bed. So you want, yeah, you want your bedroom to be dark, cool, quiet Sleep if possible. So, um, but so what about the idea that like we've all heard about, I guess it's wrong now since you mentioned the science behind it, but like to, to have it be all toasty and you know what I mean? Like be all, yeah. you know, you know, those blankets where you like plug in the, the wall and it heats yeah. up and all that. So what about all those? Not... So the, the blankets or whatnot, I'm not sure about that. There's a interesting bit I heard about warm baths before bed. Yeah. They're, those are actually a great idea. Uh, if you think the warm baths, um, they, by heating up your body. So generally when you, when you're, when you're cold, your body, uh, constricts blood vessels towards the periphery it keeps everything the you know the hot blood towards the middle keep the good stuff warm in the middle keep your heart your lungs warm when it's hot so when you're lying in a warm bath it will dilate your capillaries it allows the heat to move outwards yep. to the periphery of your body right it's trying to get rid of heat essentially um 
because of that, you get, you get in a warm bath, you come out, blood vessels are still dilated, but your body heat is still peripheral. You'll quickly cool off oh. afterwards, and then you get in bed, you're actually cooler centrally than you were before the bath. So even though it's a hot bath, you're essentially cooling your body down in some ways. Hmm. So in terms of the, the hot blankets, I don't know. But the hot shower or the hot bath. The hot bath. shower, the hot bath, absolutely. That's, uh, yeah. There's also just some, some calming component to, to, uh, yeah. to baths and showers. That's true. So what about naps? How do you feel about naps? I feel like naps are great. Yeah. I'm a, I'm a big fan. Big, big proponent. Big proponent of naps. Dude, I nap today. I woke up early. I mean, we're doing this at 2 p.m., yeah. so I woke up around maybe 7.45, something like that, which is much earlier than I usually get up for, um, and did some work and all that, and then went to bed maybe for like 30 minutes. Yeah. Oh, amazing. Naps are it's the best. incredible. Yeah. So nap, there's a reason the siesta exists. It's not just some Spanish guy decided it would be a good idea. Mm -hmm. It's a natural, we talk about, once again, this idea of circadian rhythms, and there's a lot of evidence to say that there's one big rhythm at night and a minor rhythm post-lunch, right? That, that, that idea of that 1 to 3 p.m. little lull is very much just a biological occurrence. Um, it's a, yeah, they call it, it's like almost, uh, there's like, yeah, two sleep phases almost throughout the day. So, yeah. so naps are actually, are excellent. Uh, if you want to get a nap, if you can get a nap for a couple hours, go for it. A mm -hmm. um, couple hours? Like one or two Really? Absolutely. So oh, the thing I is, I was so, like twenty minutes so, max. Well, so that's what I was gonna say. If you want to go for it, the thing, the drawback to that is you have some. As soon as you're into an hour or two, or anything really, they're saying above, or the research says above about twenty to thirty minutes for sure. Uh, you get something called sleep inertia, mm -hmm. which is just you know when you wake up after any night's sleep, it takes you. I don't know about. It's variable. For me, it takes me a solid hour to be... To actually wake up. To will be willing yeah. to talk to somebody. Yeah. Whereas other people are totally fine within 15 minutes. But either way, there's this period... Nobody likes those people. No. No, we don't. No. Uh, there's this period of like a warm-up period, right? So that's the sleep inertia. It just takes a while for everything to get up and running. Mm. If you... Uh, generally, you find very little to no sleep inertia if you keep your nap time to about 20 minutes. So the, the usual recommendation is... Set your alarm for 30 minutes. Take, you know, five to 10 minutes to actually really fall asleep. Have about a 20-minute nap. If you wake up before your alarm, get up, shut it off, and you're good to go. Mm -hmm. And you should, and it's very individual, but you should have, about that time, you should find that you'll have no sleep inertia. So for me, because I'm especially affected by inertia, I set my alarm for about 25 minutes, sometimes 20 if I don't have that much time. It takes me five eight minutes to fall asleep and then I get a good 15 to 20 minute nap mm -hmm. and I feel uh, there's there's uh, evidence for improved alertness, improved accuracy on performance tests, improved all these measures of like cognitive speed, essentially processing speed. So it's, it's not that a 20 minute nap will only decrease your inertia. Is that what's called inertia? Yeah. But it would actually recharge you more? Yeah. So I should say the inertia comes from just get once you get into like the deeper phases of sleep. Yeah. It just takes a while to come out of that. So it's like a drawback to a nap. Naps themselves, whether it's short or long, and longer is a little bit better. Uh, but there's that drawback, obviously. Oh, yeah. But but naps themselves, it's it's like mini bouts of sleep, right? It's it's if we're talking about uh like giving your 
a chance a brain to relax and process what happened that day if we're talking about giving it your body a little bit of a chance when there's no internal no stimulus coming in not it's mini sleeps they're it's good it's only good stuff right so they one thing is you'll say well you know i i slept five hours at night uh my I'm, I'm gonna make up for it i'm supposed to get seven hours of sleep i'll sleep two hours during the day that is an effective strategy uh-huh. just not in the long term mm-hmm. so in the short term if you need to make it up absolutely use naps they're a fantastic way they're super recommended we talked about ind- individual sport athletes uh naps are highly recommended for them between practices it's just not it's much better to get it at night it seems like so if you can get your eight hours at night have a nap an additional nap during the day that's good if you can only get five hours a night and you make it up during the day that's better than nothing but better still not. not as good Right. Because I was going to ask you about uh, pregame naps, because mm-hmm. I was under the impression that anything over a 30 minute nap is not good for you, but you just, uh, you just dropped some knowledge on me. So I know now, um, I know in the NHL, I was reading this article on NHL.com and it was saying players nap between one to two hours on game days, right after the pregame meal. And so I thought that was bad, but apparently that's good. But what about having a pregame meal and which is obviously going to be heavy? And then go into bed right away. Is that, uh, do you know, do you know much about, um, you know, how much you should eat before you go to bed or whether you should eat at all before you go to bed? Yeah, there's, there's a little bit. So the nighttime recommendations are, are generally eat something about, you know, 90 minutes to two hours before you want to have something in your stomach. because you can get, you can wake up. It's common to wake up from being too hungry, mm-hmm. uh, but you also don't want anything too heavy. So either too highly based in fat or way too much protein is what i've seen but especially you know heavy in fat that kind of stuff that takes it's a little harder to process um but yeah so the general recommendations about three four hours have like your last meal and then eat maybe a little something one to two hours before you sleep at night so when it comes to naps um that idea of this one to two hour nap whenever you say it's bad it's just because excuse me, of that, this idea of sleep inertia. So it's just because it takes them a while. They're groggy afterwards. You see them wake up groggy. You assume that's going to last the rest of the day. If that's their normal routine, it's totally fine. Uh, when it comes to eating beforehand, just all I know is based off those nighttime recommendations. Uh, if they if they eat something, generally because they're eating it on game day, it's probably going to be pretty easy to process anyways. So you talk yeah. about like their standard, you know, like, chicken and pasta with tomato sauce or something as long as they don't eat too much it's probably okay and it, it is highly individual um so i would say if they wake up from their naps and they're they're having trouble waking up or they don't feel that rested or they feel like they need two hours in the middle of the day uh and they got a decent night's sleep before mm-hmm. then they might want to look at either changing the meal up a little bit or taking a little bit of an extra break in there okay that makes sense so um Do you know much about this myth that if you eat a lot before bed, you'll have nightmares? Is that... <laughs> no, I don't know much you about that. You don't know that. much, eh? That is, has never been referred to in the literature. You have I'll not heard that. about them. Hmm. No, that, is not, that hasn't made it into the There's papers. There's still so much for you to learn, too. <laughs> um, yeah, I don't know, because I was thinking about that when, when I was reading the articles. Like, every time I eat a lot, and then I have to nap after because you get the itis. Yeah. Um, I always have a nightmare. If I take yeah. a nap with on like an empty stomach or like a light stomach, then I'm yeah. fine. I don't know if that's, 
And I read something about that, but like, who knows if that's true or bullshit? Well, we can reason through it a little bit in terms of if we know the heavy, if processing your food uh, gets in the way a little bit, like it, it's, I don't know if it takes up some of the, your... It's a little bit of burden on your body because exactly. it has to process it and digest so it. Know. So maybe it's that. But for whatever reason, if we know that your sleep is affected by how much you eat, so you'd get less quality sleep, uh, you can reason that nightmares and dreams, uh, from what I've read, I believe tend to happen... Uh, in lighter phases of sleep right there's like there's parts of sleep there's different phases of sleep and i won't get into this too much without uh, for fear of being misquoted or whatnot but in, in terms of like your deeper slow wave sleep versus your lighter sleep as far as i know dreams tend to happen in the lighter phases so if your sleep is disrupted if you're not allowed into the deeper phases of sleep by the amount of food mm -hmm. you tend to stay in the dream phase now, I don't know, good versus bad, that just, maybe that depends on karma and you as a person, but... Oh, uh, you don't want to open that yeah, door. We're not getting in there. No, it's not uh, good. But, so, but there, so there could be something behind that. Yeah. For sure. So I know you're the sleep expert, but I want to ask you a couple <laughs> things about other forms of deliberate recovery. Absolutely, not, not, yeah. How do you feel about ice baths? Ice baths, are, they're a really cool thing. I was actually just listening to a, a podcast on the way here uh, with... Sean mine? Uh, actually, no, but I do. I do. You got your. I listened to yours already today, man. I told you that. All right. I'm a huge fan of Sir Doctor so Nick Waddy. Thank you so much. Yeah. Oh, oh Nick Waddy, not me. Okay. It, right. Well, whatever. I, it's building. Yeah. Um. But so the Doctor Shona Halson is. Uh. She works out of. She's from Australia, I believe. Still works for the AIS, the Australian Institute of Sport, uh, and she's put out a ton of research on ice baths, uh, and they're they're really cool because there's. Uh, there is a bunch of, uh, there's a little bit of controversy about them right now uh, in terms of, we know for sure that ice baths are excellent for acute recovery. Um, there's, so again, after any type of exercise, go on an ice bath and you, you uh, speed up like same day, acute couple days, that type of recovery. Uh -huh. um, there's a small question of if you have something later that day, you don't want to cool the body down too much because you're going to have to warm it up again before it, we know warming the body up before mm -hmm. performance helps it. Uh, there are some interesting little bits of information at this point that say uh, for strength training specifically, using ice baths too frequently during training might impair long-term adaptation. So there's the idea that a lot of adaptation physiological adaptation come what well, comes from stressing the body right yeah and so we, the idea of recovery is is like optimizing that post-stress environment uh to speed up the recovery to get it back to normal as fast as possible and there's this thought that well maybe we don't want to get it out of that that crappy stressful environment where there's inflammation and and byproducts swimming around in the bloodstream and those types of things maybe we want to let it sit there and force the body to perform its own adaptation why uh, so this is without getting too much into the muscle physiology it's yeah. it's the idea of like what what stimulates adaptation in the body it's it's stressing it right the body gets better because you stress it it figures out a way to grow and adapt to that stress just the, like when you increase muscle mass exactly example. all that stuff and and so muscle mass is a great one we know that muscle mass uh that hypertrophy occurs through um it can either uh, occur through high loads on the body so using heavy weight it can also occur through uh i forget what they call it, but it essentially uh, like getting a pump yeah so put it creating a like a 
A sick a, pump, I think it's called. A, a sick pump. Getting a sick pump is the, the proper term is sick pump. Oh, okay, I see. Yeah, that's what I was looking for. Yeah, but but it's it's creating a stressful environment. There are a lot of metabolites, a lot of byproducts within within the local system, right? So either load or this, but either way, you're you're imposing a stressful environment and forcing the muscle to adapt. A lot of what essentially what recovery uh, modalities or activities are is um, the you're taking that environment and you're making it like optimal. You're getting rid of a lot of those metabolites, a lot of those negative things, a lot of those uh, negative byproducts to to speed up that recovery. But by speeding up the recovery, you're, so you're returning the muscle to like its, its pre-exercise state, uh, but you're missing out on forcing the muscle to adapt. So I guess what I could say, it's the equivalent of you're tutoring somebody. Mm-hmm. You can give them the answer and get them out of their stressful, oh, okay, confused state right away. Uh, or you can let them simmer on it. You can right. let them sit and figure it out for a while. Mm. And you'll get back to where they were before, happy and carefree, quicker if you give them the answer. Yeah. But they'll get smarter and they'll get better at the activity if you let them sit on it for a while. Mm-hmm. So that's a... They won't benefit from it if you just exactly. Give them the it's that's a poor example, yeah. but it kind of makes no. That yeah. makes perfect. That's a good example. Yeah. Although the kids I Twitter, man, oh my God. <laughs> sometimes you just gotta. But yeah, so it's that. So this idea that cold water tubs are good acutely, but long term we're kind of unsure. And mm. even if you do want to use them long term, every once in a while, uh, you should go through training periods without using them mm-hmm. uh, because it might. Well, it's gonna hurt more. It's gonna be a lot tougher in that training period. Yeah. Uh, you may get better adaptation. So what about another one? Um, active recovery. Yeah. So what, what what is active recovery exactly? Like how do you, where do you draw the line between active recovery and, gen, and then just like physical activity? That's, that's a good question. Thank you. Uh, Thank you so much. That's uh, so that's one I'm not sure I can. Uh, have you ever, I heard once that somebody said, uh, whenever you're in an interview situation, and the the responder Am says, "Am I putting you on the spot?" No, no. But whenever the responder says, "That's a good question," All they're either know. one, they mainly they don't know the answer, or two, they need extra time to think of what the answer Take is. Take all the time you need, man. I but thought so, that was a genuine compliment, but whatever. <laughs> we uh, can clip this. We can edit it out. <laughs> um, so I don't, I don't really know the answer to your question in terms of what what the limit is. It's pretty individual based on the the uh, the fitness i guess the training capacity the aerobic capacity of the athlete um so for somebody who's relatively unfit there's essentially no such thing as a active recovery or a cool down because it's all work but active recovery is generally defined by very low heart rates while still performing a relevant a relevant movement Uh um interesting thing about active recovery uh a lot of it a lot of the justification for it comes about because of the idea of clearing lactate from the body, mm. uh, but when I'm no muscle physio, I'm no physiologist at all. I'm definitely not a muscle physiologist. But there's, we know now that lactate uh, is just it's just present essentially. It's a marker of what state the body's in. But lactate, you know, the burning sensation you yep. feel of all the lactic acid. That's not like lactic acid isn't what slows you down. The burning sensation is just kind of a marker that of other processes going on. So the idea of clearing lactate and of that being important, the lactate isn't doing anything to your muscles in that situation. Okay. It's, it's like a signal that something's happened. Just the marker. It's just the marker. It's not the cause of anything. So the idea that we need to clear it, 
it, it doesn't mean anything. It's like, you know, if something bad happens, you put up the red flag. Well, putting the red flag down doesn't mean anything. The bad yep. thing's still there. So the idea active recovery was mainly to clear lactate. We know that that's not a deal. So why do active recovery? And there's a meta-analysis that came out recently that essentially had that as a as a conclusion. They had a whole bunch of different outcomes, both short-term and long-term, and found that there was no real benefit to active recovery. So it's it's still a little bit inconclusive because we do know that practically every single endurance sport has cooldowns built in, and they've had cooldowns built into their programs for yeah. decades. Yeah. So we know there's something there. There's got to be something there. But we don't know what it is, essentially. So every time I have a guest on the show, yeah. and by every time I mean last time and this nice. time, um, I ask my friends like, hey, I'm having this person on. They do this and that. Do you have any questions for them? And obviously, they're idiots like me. Nice. So they never give me any good questions. <laughs> and they give me ridiculous ones. So um, I'm going to ask you a couple of them that, that they gave me those questions. And a lot of those you answered already. But, um, so one of them was like, why do I feel like garbage when I wake up after an hour nap compared to like a 20 minute nap? So, mm -hmm. okay, we get that. Um, what about, okay. Does banging count as active recovery? <laughs> uh, tough question. You know what? I don't know. I, I don't know any studies that have looked at that. I might go try and design one i might get oh, you in yeah. as a participant Please. on that if you if your your buddy too if they, if they like to participate I, to be honest that was me <laughs> you know the question on my buddy but yeah I, i'm sure he'll be down um so it you know the uh, there's like that age-old question of like do you have like sex bef the on night the before a, a fight yeah. um i actually know a guy who did his a while ago he did his I believe it was a ma his master's and his thesis was essentially uh, he did a review of the literature on on that question. Is it is having sex the night before a game a bad thing or not? OK. And from what he what I can glean from what he told me, what he found and then what I've read, the only drawbacks there is essentially come down to lack of sleep. So like if you're gonna if if you're if you're having a great time and it stretches out till 3 a.m yeah it's a bad thing mm -hmm. if you're in bed by if you're asleep by 10 30 nah it's fine no, god bless do we think exactly as yeah. in terms of active recovery uh i'm gonna have to go with no generally we see active recovery is pretty is better if it's somewhat relevant specific mm -hmm. to the activity so i don't i don't know if porn stars uh use cooldowns. maybe maybe that could help them but what other kind than of that, cool I don't think would they so. use though I don't know if they need one. I mean, there's a lot of activity involved. Dude, it's in hard that. work. It is true. Yeah. It can be long sessions it's, too. It's, a, it's an honest uh, profession. And, uh, it's a hard working one, that's for sure. It is. It is. All respect uh, to to uh, our fellow porn stars. Um, what else they want? Yeah, that's pretty much it, man. I uh, I had a lot of questions actually from my friends, but you've, all, you've answered them all. So I don't think there's a better way to end this podcast than on this, uh, on that shitty question from... Uh, my friend, quote unquote, <laughs> my friend. So thanks for doing this, man. I really appreciate it. And uh, hopefully I can have you back on soon and we'll discuss the results of your, of your uh, thesis. Absolutely. How's thanks very sound? much for having me. Hi, uh, man. Thank you.